Hi, everybody, and welcome to Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-host today is Johan N., and our Q&A is Nancy J. If you have any questions or concerns during this meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts, and you can do this by private message in the chat function. Please note that our speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session which follows, that will not be recorded. We will put a link to the previous week's recording in the chat function and also a link to the seventh edition. We kindly ask that you can please keep your microphones on mute at all times during today's study. And also, please turn off your video through your camera if you're exercising, you're eating, you're driving, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason, please just do disconnect your camera. We will disable the chat function for the duration of the meeting, and then we will enable it again about 10 minutes before the Q&A. And now we will go over to Harlan G in Scottsdale, Arizona. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the meeting and thank you for everybody who does service to keep this meeting going. I really appreciate that. And when you look at this meeting or you're listening to this meeting, you may think that this is just me. It is far from just me. There are people who post the recordings on the website. There are people who do the behind the scenes activities to keep this thing going. And there's lots and lots of service that happens in this meeting that has zero to do with me. I'm so glad to be here this morning. And as I often say, I hope that it is as astounding where you live as it is in Scottsdale, Arizona today. It is 77 degrees. We're headed to 92 degrees. There isn't a cloud in the sky and it's absolutely stunning outside. The air is dry and beautiful. And we say to each other, this is why we live here. This, this time of year to mid-May, the end of May, is exactly why we live here. This is when Arizona is just absolutely paradise, just paradise. So uh, if you have a chance to visit here, uh, this is the time of year to do that for sure. Um, anyway, we have been talking about the chapter two employers. This is a very difficult chapter for me to bring to life to you because it's a chapter that is almost defiant of any real commentary. But what I've gleaned out of this chapter from studying it over the many, many years is that what we're gonna do together today, and we're gonna be doing it for a while, is we're gonna be looking at this chapter and instead of applying it to an employer of a large company, which is really the, uh, the, the uh, not the paradigm, but really, yeah, the paradigm, I guess, it from or the position from which this chapter appears, we're going to look at these things and apply them to ourselves. So rather than think, gee, I don't really employ thousands of people. I don't work for a company that's that big. How is this going to apply to me? We're going to apply this stuff to ourselves. And the three uh, things that we talked about last week are the three uh, kind of uh, situations from this chapter that we can learn from. The first one was loss. 
And the loss that we suffer at the hands of this disease is massive. Some of us come in early. I came in when I was 24 years old. Some of us come in much later, but most of us don't really catch fire in this program until we're older. I'm not saying everybody, but most people don't catch fire until they're older with an understanding because it takes a tremendous amount of pain and suffering. And it takes a tremendous amount of experimentation of trying to do this by yourself on your own, because unfortunately, the human ego is defiant of recovery and the ego resurrects itself gorgeously. But what does the ego tell us? The ego says, I can do this myself. I'm the exception to the rule. The ego has three jobs primarily. Number one, make me right. Number two, make me feel good right now. And that's why I ate you know, railroad cars full of Chips Ahoy cookies and railroad cars full of Captain Crunch and uh, Almond Joy bars and M&Ms with peanuts because I needed to feel good right now. And the last thing that the ego does is it tells me incessantly that somehow I am different from you. I am set aside. And you hear this in meetings all the time. People will share in their leads, you know, I thought I was different. I didn't think this would work for me. I didn't think I was like you. And I came in with a little bit of an opposite take on my life. When, when most people come in, from what I've heard over 44 years. When most people come in, they come in with the idea that we who are here are compulsive overeaters, but maybe they are not. Maybe they are the exception to the rule. I came in knowing that I had a very horrible relationship with weight and food, but I didn't see why you were here because on February 2nd, 1979, on a Friday night in Skokie, Illinois, when I came into my first meeting, it was a rainy, cold, miserable February afternoon, February evening. And I was in Skokie, Illinois, right outside Chicago, where I was born and raised. And I went to this meeting and I saw people that looked just like you. They had normal sized bodies by and large, or maybe they were a little overweight, but I was hundreds and hundreds of pounds overweight. I was 335 pounds in high school. I was 500 pounds by the time I was a sophomore in college. And by the time I graduated college in 1977, I was about 600 pounds at that time. So I looked around and I saw people that looked like you. And I thought to myself, I understand that I'm crazy when it comes to food, but what in the world are these people doing here? What in the world are these people sitting here for? And I looked around and I saw the Lincoln Continentals and the Cadillacs in the parking lot. And I thought to myself, look at their clothes, look at their cars. Man, if I had the kind of money that some of these people must have, man, I wouldn't darken the door of a place like this. I'd have it made, I'd be on easy street because if I had this and this, 
Maybe I could get a girlfriend or a wife. And why in the world would I come here? Well, boy, was I to learn a lot in the ensuing years. Holy mackerel, was I to get an education in the whole scenario, the whole uh, uh, scene, the whole thing, the whole picture is what I'm trying to say. So we're going to start on page 140. And we're going to start on, I well remember the shock. Just to let you know where we're going to start, page 140, I well remember the shock, about halfway, three quarters of the way down the page. But when we go through this chapter, what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about how to apply the very things that he's going to describe here in industry to our own lives. And we're going to be looking primarily for examples of loss, which we all lost time. We lost opportunity. We lost dreams. We lost situations. We have a tremendous amount of loss from this disease. This disease robs us of dignity. It robs us of dreams. It robs us of everything that is inherent to a full life. It makes us live in secret. It makes us live in pain. It puts us in physical pain. It puts us in scenarios that you wouldn't put your worst enemy in. It's not just a disease of food and weight and that. It's well beyond that. It's a disease of self-loathing. It's a disease of fear. It's a disease of doubt. It's a disease of social anxiety. What are people gonna say when they see me? How am I going to face this one? How am I going to face that one? And so it produces within us a social isolation. And that's what any good abuser does. Any decent abuser will isolate you from your support system. It will they will isolate you from your family, from your friends, from your support system, your network. So what this disease does is it calls you from the pack like a wolf would a sheep. And the wolf isolates you from the pack so you have no protection. That's where it starts. Now you're isolated. You can't interact with people. You're ashamed of what you look like. You hate yourself. You don't feel worthy of social scenarios. You don't feel worthy of this or worthy of that a lot of the times. Now, I'm not speaking strictly universals. Many of you had very active social lives. I'm talking about me primarily, and I'm talking about from what I can gather, many or most of us. Now, some of you do not fit into this category. I certainly did fit into this category. Some of you did, some of you didn't. There are exceptions to every rule. There are exceptions to every high percentage. But a lot of you did fit into this. And then what happens is it starts to make your life extremely small. It starts to isolate you, make your life very small. All you're doing at the end is just eating, 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 and isolating, eating and isolating. Is this true for all of you? I don't know. I know it's true for me. Eating, isolating. I became very ineffective at my job. I became very ineffective as a friend. I became very in ineffective as an employer or employee. Now, I didn't have romantic entanglements, obviously, in those days. Uh, I wasn't to go on my first date till I was 35 years old. 
And so I missed out on all that. You know, I've never been the love of somebody's life. I've never, you know, I've never enjoyed passion of, of youth. I've never enjoyed, you know, all that stuff. I missed it. And it hurts to miss it. It hurts that I was denied this by a disease that I didn't cause, I didn't choose, and I can't control. I didn't cause it. I can't control it. And I can't, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I can't control it. But the bottom line is I missed out on every dream I could have dreamed. I didn't want to be selling on the phone. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be someone who could teach at my old high school. And I had the political connections to get into Mather High School in Chicago. I could have been assigned there because my friend's dad was the alderman in Chicago and he was the head of the education committee and he could have been a connection for me to get assigned there. But how was I going to stand in front of a class at five, 600 pounds that wasn't going to work? And so in most of my situations, most of my scenarios, I never even chased my dreams. I never chased my crushes. I never chased my ambitions because I knew I was just going to fail. And there was an overwhelming impending sense of calamity. Bill Wilson, Wilson talks about this impending sense of calamity. And I definitely had that. But in me, I wanted death. I knew I could not live with the food. I knew I couldn't live without the food. So death to me at that time was a welcome welcome respite from the hell that I was living in. Now, do all of you have that fantasy of death? I hope not, but I definitely did. So when it came to professional ambitions, when it came to romance, when it came to whatever, I had no ability to move forward in my life because failure was all around me. And I knew, I didn't think, I knew that if I tried anything, I would fail. So now when I try things and I actually give them the attention that they require, when I am successful, it is not the shock that it was. But when I first started trying at things and I found that I could be successful, it was a big surprise to me because never in my wildest imagination did I ever believe that I could be successful even in small little arenas, even in small little things. So it was a surprise. It was a real surprise. Uh, I know someone, I have somebody in my life that likes to do the Sudoku and they like to do crossword puzzles. And every day of this person's life, when they get up in the morning, they're retired. But every day when they get up, they like to do a Sudoku or a crossword puzzle and they give themselves a star for completing it. And I thought that is a fantastic way to affirm yourself with a small little positive, wonderful accomplishment. And I try to do little things like that with my walking, with my program, with different things, because it really makes me feel good. And anything that will help me not hate myself, 
as much as I used to is good. Now, I like myself. And we talked about last week, there's two permanent relationships in in anyone's life, not mine, anyone's, the relationship with God and the relationship with self. And when we work on that relationship with God, I write dear God letters. I try to communicate with God and I try to develop a friendship and a, a love relationship with God. I'm not ashamed to tell anybody, I believe in God. I trust God. I know that he's here with me. I had a hematoma injury a month ago. I was in the hospital. I couldn't get out of bed. I did not. I was in the hospital six days. I could not get out of bed the first three or four days. Then they got me up, they got me walking, they got me moving, so on and so forth. I look at where I am in a month and I know that there's a God. I'm used to walking three miles a day. Well, I can't do that today. But here's what I did yesterday. For the first time, I walked over two miles. Now, if that isn't God, I don't know who that is. But the two permanent relationships in any life, and during this chapter, we're going to talk about the, the relationship we have with ourselves. And this is, by the way, the only chapter in the book because it's written by Hank Parkhurst. Please don't call him Hank Parker. It's Hank Parkhurst. And truthfully speaking, he was much more of a co-founder than Dr. Bob. If it wasn't for Hank Parkhurst, there might not be a big book today. But Hank Parkhurst wrote this chapter. And from this chapter, when I apply it, the two relationships, the one with God and the one with me, are so improved because I do things that are self-esteemable. I do self-esteemable activities today. I do write Dear God letters. I do try to do little accomplishments. Uh, every once in a while, I take my hand in a crossword puzzle too. And sometimes I have to look stuff up and you know, I think to myself, oh, you can't really give yourself a star. You're looking this up, you're looking that up, but I'm learning, I'm learning. I'm expanding my vocabulary all the time. And it teaches me you know, different things I never knew before. I'm learning new words, things like that. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> so when we get into this chapter and we see the reactions of industry toward alcoholics, we're going to find out that it is very parallel to the reactions that we have had with our own addiction. Very, very parallel to those reactions. And those reactions are often benign ignorance. Those reactions are a common sense, sort of cerebral kind of thing that as long as we've reasoned it out cerebrally, we shouldn't have a problem. And if there's anything we know about this disease, it does not yield at all to any sort of cerebral reasoning. Would any of us have compulsively overeaten when we found out that A, it's a health thing, B, it makes us look bad, C, clothes don't hang right on you, D, it, it just, it sucks to be overweight, it just blows chunks to be, you know, obese. Who would choose that? 
Who in their right mind would choose that? But the operative word that I used is who in their right mind, because we are not in our right mind, because reasoning and cerebral thought does not enter into this. This is not a decision that we make. The decision that we're going to make is to turn our will and life over to God as we understood God or understand God. And But who in their right mind would choose this? It's a life of hell and it's a life of torture. And it's just not a very good life when you think about the, the bigger picture. It's just, There's no advantage to this at all. So we're operating beyond the realm of the earthly. There's no earthly cause to this disease. You are not a compulsive overeater because you're German, you're Jewish, you're Italian, you're Danish, you're Swedish, you're, you're a mutt, you're whatever. It, that's not why. And, and yes, your culture uses food to celebrate. Well, let me ask you a question. You can email me or text me privately. Do you know of a culture that doesn't use food? Even ants at a picnic celebrate with food when they're at the picnic and they come in marching into your picnic basket. They're celebrating with food too. And they're not even human. So the bottom line is every culture does that. But nine out of 10 people can celebrate or mourn with food and they do not become compulsive overeaters. There's brothers and sisters, twins, where one is and one weighs 370 and one weighs 190. And one is a cocaine addict and one is not. One is an alcoholic. One is, or again, doesn't matter. It, it's not a question of, of um, nurture. It's a question of nature. You either are one of us or you are not. And cocaine and heroin and other substances like that, opiates, they can create an addiction. But you cannot create an addiction out of food. If I was in a log cabin in the middle of the wilderness with 10 people and nine of those people are non-compulsive overeaters and we were force fed the most elaborate chocolate sundaes you can imagine. We were, I mean, for a week, we're in there, we're in this cabin and everybody's eating chocolate sundaes incessantly. At the end of that week, there'd be nine people that would walk out of that cabin and say, I'm never going to eat another chocolate sundae again as long as I live. And the last person, the harlan in the group, would be saying as they were leaving, hey, are you going to finish that? Hey, are you going to eat your cherry? Because I didn't get enough chocolate sundaes in that week of indulging day and night, night and day in chocolate sundaes, because there's never enough for a person like me. There just never seems to be enough. Enough is not on the table. So the, the normal person, the more food they eat, the less hungry they are, the less food they want. In my body, when I eat fried food, sugar, flour, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want. And it's just endless. It's just endless. It never ends. So there are certain things I know not to put in my body. And of course, I need God's help because 
my brain says, yeah, 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 this time will be different. Send that stuff in. And my body says, yeah, you send it in. And there's no telling where this is going to stop. Let's go to page 140. I well remember the shock I received when a prominent doctor in Chicago told me of cases where pressure on the spinal fluid actually ruptured the brain. Now, this is Dr. Dan Kraske. And Dr. Dan Kraske spoke to Hank about this. And Dr. Dan Kraske explained this to Hank Parkhurst and Hank put it in the book. But that's the guy's name. It's not Dr. Silkworth. It's not Dr. Bob. It's Dr. Dan Kraske in Chicago. That may be on the test. So you may want to write that down. Okay. No wonder an alcoholic is strangely irrational. Who wouldn't be with such a fevered brain? Normal drinkers are not so affected, nor can they understand the aberrations of the alcoholic. Now, let's take a look at the major aberration of a brain when it comes to addiction. In a normal person's brain, when you convince that person that they can't eat certain things like uh, shellfish or, or, or um, nuts, you know, a lot of the, the I live across the street from a real big high school. It's the biggest high school in, in Scottsdale. It's huge. And it's called Chaparral High School. And I went to Mather High School in Chicago. Mather is not anywhere as big structurally. The, 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 the building is nowhere this big, but we were better and we could come here and kick their ass, but we don't want to. We don't want to embarrass them. But anyway, okay, so let's take a look at the major aberration. The major aberration is, I'm talking about peanut allergies. That's why I started talking about the high school. When you go to this high school across the street from my house, you are not to bring peanut butter, nuts, Anything like that in your lunch, if you're bringing your lunch or you're bringing whatever, you are not to bring in peanuts, cashews, whatever. I don't know. Walnuts, pistachios, I guess. I don't know. My kid went there. I have a daughter. She's not in high school anymore. She's, she'll be 28 years old in December. But she went to Chaparral High School and we had to sign a thing, a paper. Not we. My wife had to sign a piece of paper that said, we will not send her with these nut products and nut butters and nut, nut derivatives. And anything with nuts in it is verboten, absolutely verboten. You can't do that. Now, let's take a look at the point I'm trying to make here. In a normal person's body, excuse me, in their mind, in their mind, the intellectual will outweigh the emotional. Now, let's explain that because it's important. Intellectually, I know that Butterfinger bars are really, really bad for me. Emotionally, because those Butterfinger bars do something for me, not to me, for me, my emotional state is such, I want that effect now, Dr. Silkworth calls this the effect. What is the effect? The effect is the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating certain foods. So emotionally, I eat pizza or candy or 
French fries, whatever that might be, I eat these things because I say, screw it, I'll be okay tomorrow. But for today, I'm going to eat these things because of what they're going to do for me, not because of an intellectual decision that I'm already 350 pounds, I'm going to eat more Almond Joy bars. No. In a normal person who's non-addicted, the intellectual will overwhelm the emotional. You with me so far? If I know something is bad for me, I will not do it. In the addicted person who needs that effect, who needs that rush of, of relief, from the restlessness, the irritability, the anger, the fear, the ennui of normal life, the vicissitudes of a normal life. I have to have an escape. I have to have an escape. I am not addicted to pineapple, yet I'm highly allergic to pineapple. When I eat pineapple, I get canker sores on my tongue. And I have to take a thing that you buy at the drugstore and spray it on there. And then my canker sores go away. I don't eat pineapple. I haven't had pineapple in probably 50 years. I haven't eaten any pineapple more than 50 years. I bet I haven't had pineapple since the 1960s. Probably not because I've messed with it. It messed back. And I got, and when I eat certain things I'm allergic to, cantaloupe, pineapple, different things that are high in acid, I get canker sores on my tongue. It just happens. When I don't eat those things, I don't get canker sores. But every once in a while, I'll get one because I didn't quite you know, keep up with it. But here's what I will tell you. Every single time I eat Twinkies, I break out in blubber. I break out in fat. My life gets worse. My life sucks the wazoo. And by eating Twinkies, it makes my life even worse. In other words, the Twinkies are saying, hi, eat me. You think your life sucks now? Try a couple of more Twinkies. See if it doesn't suck even worse. Okay, I'll take five packages. Now, nobody would make that decision. But the emotional, because I'm addicted, the emotional outwhelm, overwhelms the intellectual. And this is a huge difference between the addicted brain and the non-addicted brain. I have never stood there at the grocery store and said, I think I'm going to get a pineapple. Maybe this time it won't hurt me. Never done that. I've never, ever done that. Because I know pineapples make my tongue go Looney Tunes. But I have done that with candy and cookies cakes and all kinds of things because the emotional in what I'm addicted to overwhelms the intellect and it will continue to overwhelm the intellect in an addicted person. Let's continue. Your man has probably been trying to conceal a number of scrapes, perhaps messy ones, lying, writing bad checks, isolating, they may be disgusting. You may be at a loss to understand how such a seemingly above board chap could be so involved. But these scrapes can generally be charged no matter how bad to the abnormal action of alcohol on his mind. When drinking or getting over about an alcoholic, sometimes the model of honesty when normal will do incredible things. Afterward, his revulsion 
will be terrible. Nearly always, these antics indicate nothing more than temporary conditions. And that temporary condition, again, is in the alcoholic mind. We lie, we assign blame, we keep score, and we fight battles that just don't exist. And we can't stop doing that until we have a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. Let's continue. We're at the top of page 141, 141. This is not to say that all alcoholics are honest and upright when not drinking. Of course, that isn't so. And such people often may impose on you. Seeing your attempt to understand and help, some men will try to take advantage of your kindness. If you are sure your man does not want to stop, he may as well be discharged. The sooner the better. You are not doing him a favor by keeping him on. Now, I want to stop right there. Oh, firing such an individual may prove a blessing to him. It may be just the jolt he needs. Now, how do we apply that to our life? Through sponsorship. Some of you will say to me, I don't fire anybody. I stay with these people and they've binged 83 times and I'm still with them and I'm still this and I'm still that. Really, I understand. I know you want to be loyal and I know you're scared of change and you don't want to you want to try not to hurt anybody's feelings. But do you think you're helping that person? Do you think you're helping that person knowing damn well that you are not the voice of help for that person? If I was sponsoring someone who continually went back into the food three, four, five times, you can bet your life I'm going to let that person go. I'm not helping that person. So what it says here is as applicable to sponsorship as it is to industry. And it it's applies to myself too. If I don't really want this and I'm not doing the work, nothing is going to happen. If you're listening to my voice, whether you're here on uh, October the 14th, which is a beautiful Saturday here in Arizona, it's going to be 92 degrees. It's just absolutely gorgeous here. Uh, if, if you're here or you're listening on a podcast, whatever that situation is, if you want different, you got to do different. If I do the same, I will get the same. My friend in South Jersey, my friend in South Jersey says often, I'm very sorry that you did not get any results from the work you refused to do. And I say it differently. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. And if you think you're doing it and you're failing and you're not getting the results you need, you need to do more and possibly different. Doing more of the same isn't going to usually get you what you want. You may have to actually do different, not just more. Because what you're doing isn't working. You can't sit in your canoe and go west and keep paddling west and you really want to go north. If you want to go north, you're going to have to turn that canoe around and you're going to have to paddle it in a different direction. 
And if you don't paddle that canoe in a different direction, you're not, nothing is going to change. Nothing. And if you're sponsoring someone and they're not recovering and you've been on this path many times, the kindest, most loving, most wonderful thing you can do is let the person go. You're afraid you're going to hurt their feelings? Too bad. Too bad. I'd rather have a friend that's alive that hates me than a dead friend who loved me. You're not here to be their friend. You're here to help them. And if you won't help them, that's not God's work. Sometimes the kindest thing you can do is let them go. And from your own perspective, sometimes what's dictate what what's what the dictate is is you do it differently. You can't keep doing the same damn thing again and again and again and again and think you're going to get different results. It does not work that way. <laughs> Let's continue. I know in my own particular case that nothing my old company would could have done would have stopped me for so long as I was able to hold my position, I could not possibly realize how serious my situation was. Sometimes letting a person go wakes them up and it gives them that ability to see the reality for what it is. Had they fired me first and had they taken then taken steps to see that I was presented with the solution contained in this book, I might have returned to them six months later, a well man. But there are many men who want to stop and with them you can go far. Again, sponsorship. You get somebody that wants to do this, concentrate on them. Your understanding treatment of their your understanding treatment of their cases will pay dividends. Perhaps you have such a man in mind. He wants to quit drinking, and you want to help him, even if he even if it be only a matter of good business. You know, you now know more about alcoholism. You can see that he is mentally and physically sick. Mentally, the twist; physically, the allergy. You are willing to overlook his past performances. Suppose an approach is made something like this. I'm at the bottom of 141, soon to be on 142. State that you know about his drinking, that it must stop. You must say you appreciate his abilities, would like to keep him, but cannot if he continues to drink. A firm attitude at this point has helped many of us. Again, this is expert advice on sponsorship. Continuing on 142, next, he can be assured that you do not intend to lecture, moralize, or condemn that if this was done formerly, it was because of misunderstanding. If possible, express a lack of hard feeling toward him. At this point, it may be well to explain alcoholism, the illness. And again, this is sponsorship, pure sponsorship. Tell the person of the allergy, tell the person of the twist of the mind that condemned you to eat against your will. Say that you believe he is gravely ill, a gravely ill person with this qualification for being perhaps fatally ill. Does he want to get well? Ask the person that you're sponsoring, do you want to get well? I've had people over the years tell me no. 
They are only there because their wife's nagging them or their girlfriend's nagging them or their kids are nagging them or their boss is nagging them. And they really don't want to do this. If they don't want to do this, leave them alone. Leave them alone. You ask because many alcoholics being warped and drugged do not want to quit. Self-explanatory. But does he? Will he take every necessary step submit to anything to get well, to stop drinking forever. I wouldn't necessarily talk about forever. I would talk about one day. I would talk about one day at a time. Now, remember that we're trying to fit in with sponsorship here. This is not just about industry. Industry aside, most of us are not personnel directors at huge companies. Most of us are not people that work for this kind of company. If you are, you're the exception to the rule here. Most of us work for mid-sized, small companies and so on. If he says yes, does he really mean it? Or down inside, does he think he is fooling you? Or, and that after rest and treatment, he will be able to get away with a few drinks now and then. We believe a man should be thoroughly probed on these points. Be satisfied he is not deceiving himself or you. Don't deceive yourself. Are you still thinking in the back of your mind that on your birthday or at your kid's wedding, you're going to have some cake? Are you still telling yourself the lies that we've told ourselves for so very long that every once in a while we can still eat such and such or so and so? Are you still a victim of that delusion that you can wrest satisfaction out of this world if you only manage well? Are you still part of that delusion that says one day you'll be able to eat like a normal person? Because that day is never going to come. You need a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps or you are going to find that every single time you binge, you are not going to be able to predict where that stops. You are not going to be able to predict where that binge is going to end because that binge is going to be dictated by your physical allergy, not by you. That's, that's the reality of it, guys. Page 142, whether you mention this book is a matter for your discretion. If he temporizes and still thinks he can ever drink again, even beer, he might as well be discharged after the next bender, which if an alcoholic, he is almost certain to have. He should understand that emphatically. Either you are dealing with a man who can and will get well, or you are not. If not, why waste time with him? This may seem severe, but it is usually the best course. Once again, sponsorship. Are you sponsoring people that have binged five, six, 10, 20 times under your watch? Are you helping them? Or are you playing the martyr? Are you helping them? Or are you just afraid that they won't like you? Are you helping them? Or are you so dictated by what other people think and say that you're doing something that you know is wrong with that person? Are you really helping that person? What about yourself? Have you binged 5, 10, 20 times in this program but changed nothing? Have you been in that food 5, 10, 20, 30 times and be unwilling to work the steps with a different sponsor? 
Have you done things to yourself with food, even once you are in program that you are deeply ashamed of, number one, and number two, that you are feeling the consequences of? At what point do you stop the suffering in yourself and say, I'm going to do something different? Because if you do what you did, you will get what you got. If you do what you did, you will get what you got and the results will never change. What kind of madness in the human addicted soul drives us to hurt ourselves in ways we would never do to our worst enemy? What is it that calls us to such destruction? What is it that causes us to act in a way that is not in our own best interest? What is it? What music are we listening to as addicted people that calls us to every day, every week, every month, be further and further away from goals like health and wellness and 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 a relief from this horrible murderer, terrorist of a disease? What is it that calls us to do things to ourselves we wouldn't do to our worst enemy? And the only explanation is the effect. Alcoholics drink because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. When they are, when they are drinking like that, it just appears normal. That's what that's saying to me. And what, it's, what it goes on to tell me is, I get frustrated with life because when I'm not drinking, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. Throw in angry, scared to death, frustrated. I'm all those things and worse. Shame-ridden, guilt-ridden, traumatized by this disease, traumatized by what's happening in my life. And yet the only relief I know is in candy and cake. The very same thing that caused the problem, I am looking as a solution. That's insanity. That's insanity. The brain that got me into this is the brain I want to figure out a way out. A broken brain cannot fix a broken brain. My best thinking got me here. I need God's help. I need something different. I cannot rely on self. Bottom of 142. After satisfying yourself that your man wants to recover and that he will go to any extreme to do so, you may suggest a definite course of action. Better advice on sponsorship I could not think of. For most alcoholics who are drinking or who are just getting over a spree, a certain amount of physical, I'm at the top of 143, a certain amount of physical treatment is desirable, even imperative. 
The matter of physical treatment should, of course, be referred to by your own doctor. Whatever the method, its object is to thoroughly clear mind and body of the effects of alcohol. In competent hands, this seldom takes long, nor is it very expensive. Your man will fare better if placed in such physical condition <clears throat> that he can think straight and no longer craves liquor. In other words, he has to be dry. If you propose such a procedure to him, it may be necessary to advance the cost of treatment, but we believe it should be made plain that any expense will later be deducted from his pay. It is better for him to feel fully responsible. Self-explanatory, but very, very important. If I'm at 143, if your man accepts your offer, it should be pointed out that physical treatment is but a small part of the picture. Though you are providing him with the best possible medical attention, he should understand that he must undergo a change of heart. What do you need to have a change of heart? You need a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. That's the only thing that's going to change us. To get over drinking will require a transformation of thought and attitude. How does that happen? Spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. We had to place recovery above everything for without recovery, we would have lost both home and business. You know, I'm sick and tired of having this conversation. People call me all the time, especially during the summer. I don't know what I'm going to do. We're going out of town. I'm going to a wedding and I can't not eat cake in front of my niece. It's her wedding. I can't not eat what my aunt makes. Do what you want. Do what you want. This has to be numeral uno in my life. Numeral uno in my life without exception. Before anything else, and I mean anything, there is no exception to this rule in my life. Recovery is job one. Not money, not relationship, not friends, nothing. There is nothing above recovery in my life. And that is as it should be, because if I'm not in recovery, I'm not a friend to my friends. If I'm not in recovery, I can't run my business. If I'm not in recovery, I am not a partner for a relationship. If I'm not in recovery, I am a closed shop. I don't care what you're saying. You can drop dead and that wouldn't phase me. All I'm thinking about is, are you going to eat that? Are you going to finish that? When can we get some more? I want to get some candy on the way out. I want to get halava on the way out. I want to get some bagels and some donuts on the way out. And when I'm done with the bagels and I'm done with the donuts, now I want to stop for a nash. I don't care what you're saying. I couldn't care less. You are either bringing me food or go drop dead. You're either part of my solution or you're nothing. You're dead to me. I love my friends. 
I love my relationship. I love my little business. Actually not, but okay. I need my little business. I love my little business and it, it, it supports me. You know, I get my social security and I get this and somehow I make it, you know, my bills are paid. I, my house is paid. My car is paid for, you know, I don't owe anybody a nickel. I have no credit. I'm not a rich man, but I have excellent credit. I have no credit card debt at all. None, not a penny. Well, that has to come from somewhere. Can I sit here and dial the phone and sell and do what I need to do when all I can think of is how am I going to get donuts and how am I going to get crap in my mouth? Of course I can't. Of course I can't. So that's important for me to remember that this is job one. And it's so tempting. You know, God, it's so tempting to make my friends number one or my significant other number one or make, you know, whatever number one. That's so tempting because society drives you to do that. You know, society, wait till February, wait till the end of January, beginning of February. Every commercial is show her this and show her that and buy her this and buy her that. And that's okay. I can, I can buy things. I can, that's fine. I, I'm not opposed to that, whatever that may be. But you know what the greatest gift I can give this person or my friends or anybody is? Me. I know that may sound rather ego, you know, driven, but the, the only gift I have is me. And I'm not there when I'm eating. I'm not there. My temper's flaring. I'm frustrated. I'm pissed off. I'm not really there. So if I'm in the food, my friends are going to keep their distance. My significant other is not going to be that thrilled to be with me. It's not going to be very much fun. It really isn't. It's not going to be very much fun at all. So this has to be numeral uno. Let's go to page 143, bottom. Can you have every confidence in his ability to recover? While on the subject of confidence, can you adopt the attitude that so far as you are concerned, this will be a strictly personal matter, that his alcoholic derelictions, the treatment about to be undertaken will never be discussed without his consent? It might be well to have a long chat with him on his return. To return to the subject matter of this book, it contains full suggestions by which the employee may solve his problem. No, the employee can't solve his problem. And that's where Hank and I disagree. God can solve your problem. What's the thesis line of the big book? Page 45. The main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. My employee, my sponsee, me, I cannot solve this problem. Hank and I disagree on something. Hank was a agnostic to the point of absurdity. He did not, he may have bordered on atheism, but the word God is not in this chapter. Only God, only a power greater than yourself, whether it's nature, trees, owls, 
whatever that may be for you, dogs and cats, whatever that may be for you, God, the great outdoors, God, a group of drunks, whatever that may be for you, doesn't have to be a religious deity. All it has to be is a power greater than yourself. So don't bother asking me in the Q&A, does it have to be a religious God? I thought that if you're an atheist, you could recover. Nobody said you can't. But are you, do you believe or are you willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? And if you're willing to believe or you do believe that there is a power greater than yourself, you can recover. Nobody is telling you that God has to be Jesus or Muhammad or Israel or, or whatever or Allah. Nobody's telling you that. But we're telling you, you have to be willing to believe in a power greater than yourself. That's all that's required. I'm at 144. Some of the ideas it contains are novel. Perhaps you are not quite in sympathy with the approach we suggest. By no means do we offer it as the last word on this subject. But so far as we are concerned, it has worked with us. After all, are you not looking for results rather than methods? Whether your employee likes it or not, he will learn the grim truth about alcoholism that won't hurt him a bit, even though he does not go for this remedy. We suggest you draw the book to the attention of the doctor who is to attend your patient during treatment. If the book is read the moment the patient is able, while acutely depressed, realization of his condition may come to him. We hope the doctor will tell the patient the truth about his condition, whatever that happens to be. When the man is presented with this volume, it is best that no one tell him he must abide by its suggestions. The man must decide for himself. You are betting, of course, that your changed attitude plus the contents of this book will turn the trick. In some cases, it will. And in other cases, it may not. But we think that if you per persevere, the percentage of successes will gratify you. And your, as your work spreads and our numbers increase, we hope your employees may be put in personal contact with some of us. Meanwhile, we are sure a great deal can be accomplished by the use of the book alone. Very, very important stuff. Very important stuff. So let's take a look at what we've learned today. Now, last week, we talked about loss, denial, and ignorance. The loss that we have suffered is amazing. The denial that we have often within our own self or with our sponsees is monumental. You've sponsored this person or been sponsored by this person. You've binged five, six, eight times. Change what you're doing. I know that can be very frightening. You fear the unknown. You fear going out there and getting another sponsor. What you're doing ain't working, sweetheart. It's not working. In order to get different, you got to do different and ignorance. You have to be educated as to what your condition is. It's a hopeless state of mind and body. You are not going to beat this game by yourself. It's not going to happen. So we get sponsoring advice from this chapter. That's very, very important. If it's not working, change it. Okay. If you don't have a sponsor, get one. If you've had the same sponsor or you're sponsoring her and she's sponsoring you, 
uh-uh, that don't work. No, 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 no. That's a death pact. Okay, before I turn this over to Nancy, I'm going to ask that if you asked a question last week that you hold back and let people who didn't ask a question ask one. Now, next week, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to San Diego, California to do big book, to, yeah, to do a big book weekend. And so I will have two speakers here that I know are going to be fantastic. And you are going to love them. And they are going to talk to you for 30 minutes each. And you are going to love that. And they are going to answer questions for you when they're done. Um, and so that's going to be what we're going to do next week. I will be back here on the 28th. Um, I need your prayers because the last time I was at the Phoenix airport, it didn't turn out so good. And I have to go to the Phoenix airport in order to get to San Diego. So it did not turn out very well. Let me just say that. Okay. So I'm going to turn it over. If you've asked the question. Oh, and there's two other things, please. No food and no math. No food and no math. And please, let's not have the discussion about God and the higher power. I've already explained, you do not have to have a religious deity as a higher power. It does not have to be a religious God. It just has to be a power greater than yourself. Okay, with that in mind, I'm going to turn this over to Nancy, and we will begin Q&A. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much, Harlan. That was wonderful. And, uh, you know, I've heard those words before in that chapter, but they came to life in a new way. So I want to thank you so much. And now, as far as people asking questions, um, you can either raise your hand and I will call on you. I'll, I'll look for your hand raised. Or you are very welcome to, oh, Maria, did you want to say something? Are you, you're muted. Maria? Are they muted? I don't know. I don't know what you're saying, Maria. Um, let's just move Maria, on. Maria, feel free to text me, Maria, if there's something yeah, you want me to know. On. So anyway, um, what I was going to say is you are welcome to put your questions in the chat and you can even say anonymous and I, you can send them directly to me and nobody will even know your name. So however you want to do it, we appreciate your participation. Hillary B, go ahead, please. What's up, Hill? How come just one L? What's going on with that? We can't oh. hear you, Hillary. Oh. Oh, you made me the host, Maria. Right, so unmute I, them. I guess I'm the host. I think that's what she might might be telling me. All right, let's okay, unmute. Okay, I'm them. gonna I'm gonna hit unmute. Okay, see if that Hillary, can you say something Yay, now? Hey, there it is. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you, okay. Maria and Nancy and everyone else is doing service and thank you harlan for a really enlightening powerful teaching thank you um 
I want clarity on on your uh understanding. I'm confused because to me, I am addicted to food. But you said we don't get addicted to food, and I just we do get addicted to food. I never said that. We are addicted to food. I never said that. What I said was there are certain substances, heroin. Let's say I'm not addicted to heroin. You inject me with enough heroin, it'll create its own addiction. Food will not. You either are one of us or you are not. So I am a food addict, but you're saying Correct. I was born that way. Correct. Or whatever. However Correct. You're born that way. Yes. It's a matter of nature, not nurture. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Who do we have next? Uh, Preston, go ahead, please. Preston. Thank you. My first uh, meeting today, I've been wanting to attend for quite some time. Uh, Harlem is quite a celebrity. Uh, maybe I should Boy. use the word celebrity, but you're quite well known. Um, I have more of uh, maybe an agreement and, uh, and maybe a statement. I'm so glad that we went over this section. I um, just recently changed sponsors after 14 years and um, one of the best decisions I ever made. Um, and it's just 